Hi, do you want to come out and see the writers and creators and showrunners of your favorite shows that are not on TV, but are on alternative TV, like Netflix and Hulu? And do you also want to support 826LA? You can do that, both of those things, concurrently, on February 21st at a live writer's panel with Daredevil showrunners, our old pal, Doug Petrie, and his co-showrunner, Marco Ramirez, as well as Melissa Rosenberg, the creator and showrunner of Jessica Jones. She also wrote the Twilight movies, so we'll talk about those movies. Need more? Jason Kadams, creator of Parenthood and About a Boy and the showrunner of Friday Night Lights and the executive producer of the new Hulu series, The Path, which was created by Jessica Goldberg, who will also be there. This is a huge panel. I hope that all of you will come out and ask these guys questions and talk to them and watch me talk to them and watch them talk to each other. It'll be fun. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I put the link up every day in every post. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. Or follow me on twitter.com, at Ben Blacker, and you will find the link for tickets. This is at the 826LA space in Echo Park, Los Angeles, California, America. And uh, seating is very limited. It's a small, cozy, intimate space. Synonyms. Who doesn't love them? Uh, so get your tickets soon. This is, once again, on February 21st, 5 to 7 p.m. Doesn't even ruin your day. In fact, it'll make your day. Hope to see you there. Writerspanel.tumblr.com Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! I have said this not to your face. Right. I, you know, I've said this on the podcast before. I only liked a handful of movies this year. Oh, really? And Big Short was top of the heap. Uh, it was. It's a really smart movie. It's a really well put together movie. It's a hard movie. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine what went into making it. Charles Randolph is here. We're going to talk about what went into making it. Um, what I uh, what I love about the movie, and it is what it had in common with Mad Max, right. the other great movie right. this year, right. Right. is it doesn't slow down to explain. Things yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it does not treat the audience like it's stupid. Right, right. Um, how did you even find your way into this material? Well, um, 
I mean, my, in a previous life, I was a philosophy professor. So, you know, in, in the, I went to, to, to graduate school at a time when, you know, we all studied Derrida and Foucault. And, right, and that game was always about getting one of those chiefly French books and trying to figure out what the hell these guys were talking about, mm-hmm. right? And so, in a way, that prepared me a little bit when I started make, moving into movies and going into worlds and sort of, no matter how abstract they were or obtuse they were, sort of figuring them out. You know, and that's kind of what I love to do most. So I like to do a lot of foreign cultures, for example, because um, it's just fun. Because part of the reason I do this job is I just love to read and I love to learn things. And and uh, and interesting, Adam's very much the same way. You know, uh, they but Plan B and Paramount came to me when the book came out and said, "Hey, would you take a crack at this?" And I love Didi and Jeremy, so I would have said yes anyway. Mm-hmm. I pretended like I'll let me look the book. I'll think about <laughs> it. And I read the book and. You know, it's a quick read, and it's you know, you laugh, you cry, you're like, you you know, you want to throw the book across the room because it's so frustrating, and so it was, you know, it was it was uh, a daunting task, but absolutely, I mean, the the complexity of it was what was interesting. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of writers lately, especially who look at putting together a story mm-hmm. as solving a puzzle that already exists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It sounds like that's what attracts Yeah, it is. You know, we're in this weird moment where I feel like the film school video store nerd um, approach, mm-hmm. which was always about making movies about other movies, is giving way to this sort of breakdown between fiction and nonfiction, mm-hmm. and so that, you know, people are... We've kind of exhausted all these tropes in a way, and so now we're looking for what true life can give us, what little prosaic moments that you can't capture. And I think social media has had a huge impact there because I believe that people are watching, you know, people are watching um, things online and and they're watching real. We have cameras going and filming real experiences for the first mm-hmm. time. My wife's actually working on a, on a college course where she takes filmic representations of intense emotional experiences and compares them to existent video footage, like what it means to actually die in real life versus what it means to die in, in a movie. You know what I mean, right? How, how different they are. Or, you know, these videos you see of little kids who suddenly realize their dad has come back from Iraq and is in the room, you know, or in the gym, or it's like this moving thing. You know, those experiences versus how we portray reunion, you know, and it's... Well, and, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt you a yeah, whole lot because right, I want to dig right, deep on some of this right. stuff. And I don't want to ask you to sort of sum up her course right, in right, right, a minute. Right, But what, what is she looking for? She's looking for the different, the, the differential between how we, how filmmakers create portrayals of, um, of intense emotions versus how they really exist given the fact we have so many great video records now because mm-hmm. we've been for the last 10, 15 years we've been recording everything everywhere and we'll right. continue to do so. It started off with uh, her uh, her reading a book on killing and how different the experience of killing is for people versus how it's portrayed mm-hmm. uh, in the movie. So anyway, so she's doing this course and and it, it just it, and it has occurred to me in discussion with her about how much is available to us now of the minutiae of everyday life. And so mm-hmm. I think what a lot of us are trying to do is you're trying to find stories 
that you know take us deeper into what is 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 real life separate and apart from the movies mm-hmm. you know um and and not to say those other movies aren't great and fantastic they they're their own thing and so and so I personally get really excited when it's a crazy world we haven't seen before that has these intense human experiences that we can sort of portray that haven't been portrayed and so and so yeah I think you know one of the challenges of this was okay how do we in a world of professionals who are dealing with you know these financial products at such an intense level of abstraction how are they thinking about it right and the truth is they were not what's so interesting is when you actually start re- 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 talking to these bond traders they had no idea what the products were really about all they knew is there was a price and there was a market and they were trying to get the best price either buying or selling they could right and these are guys who are serious players in that business making millions of dollars who had no idea really what I mean, they knew they could tell you in, in a, you know in a thirty second soundbite, but you know if, you know you'd ask them a, a a very specific question like in a mortgage bond, the tranches, which is the layers of profit that come in, are those tied to a specific set of mortgage, mortgages? Or are they just the profit flows from a whole, from the whole group? Right, and the answer is is the latter. Most bond traders couldn't answer that question. Sure. Yeah, they just couldn't say, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's about, maybe it's about 100 or more. I don't know. They're tied to the more. I, you know, I, I don't know. Right. And like, they knew the it, thing that yeah. they knew, and it existed on sort of an abstract level. Exactly. That's but because they're, what, you're, what you're doing in a, in a bank like that is you're, you know, often, illegally, you're front-running, or you're, you know, which is you're trading against your own clients, or you're taking information from one side of the bank, and you're sort of importing it to the other side of the bank and using what you know of trades coming down the pipe to sort of to, 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 to bet on the market. So, yeah. So, so it was just a you know you know when they came to us it was came to me it was um, one of those things of uh, let let me you know let me let me try and figure this out you know mm-hmm. and it was really exciting yeah I mean never mind that that real world problem solving right. part but you know part of, a huge part of your task because this is going to be a movie for people to watch right yeah sure to watch is and I think you you guys did a tremendous job of this is not just humanizing these characters, but giving them real depth and yeah. stakes in what they're doing. Like, we're, we're along on that journey for them. Right. How did, I mean, the characters are in the book. Obviously. They are. Have you read the book? I have not read yeah, Well, you know, the book is, and Michael casts his book well. Mm-hmm. And so it really is less of a matter of creation than isolation, mm-hmm. right? What you're really trying to do is to find very clean arcs which he's not providing because that's not his agenda, right. right? So the Mark Baum character, for example, you say, okay, this is a guy who's gonna who hates banks, goes all in betting against them because he secretly believes that our society is corrupt and incompetent, only to win and realize, oh crap, our society is incompetent and corrupt, and then not want to cash out because the minute he cashes out, he becomes the very disease he purports to cure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it was really one of those things. Okay, let's isolate just creating those arcs. And so, um, you know, we're going to start with him learning about this trade, and we're going to end with him, you know, in the original script, he was in his car when he was had to make the decision and just learned that the White House was bailing out the market instead of on the, and Adam put him, put him on a roof for, for really good reasons that had to do with, you know, the iconography of wealth. But, um, you know, uh, it was pretty clear who that, what that arc was going to be. Burry's arc was really clear because he was a guy who saw this trade two years before anybody else. He does the trade, but of course, the thing with being a short seller is, you know, it's it's not about being right; it's about being right on time, you know, you know, because you know, being early and being wrong are the exact same thing, you know. The world's full of short sellers who got out, 
because they just couldn't hang on long enough, and they ended up being right. So we knew that he was about, you know, he's going to make this trade, he's going to wait and wait and wait, and then all the forces of the culture conspire to tell him he's wrong, and then, of course, he's going to discover he's right. So those, those arcs were pretty clear in the book. It was just about sort of isolating them, making them rich, and making them linear. Let's, you know? let's get into the nuts and bolts of okay. that. Um, what was... What was Literally, the process. Did you sit in a room? Were you an actor yeah. in a room? Well, did I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did it work? Yeah, I, um, I am a big believer in uh, starting uh, with the characters, finding something about the characters that is interesting. And I try to avoid putting like actors' pictures on the walls. I try not to allow the industry to provide me with a model. I try and let something outside of the film world provided with the model, knowing that I'll have to make it work eventually in the industry. So what I always do is I start with the characters, and I start with a very specific uh, image. Sometimes it's a line, sometimes it's a moment that exhausts my capacity to tell you why that evokes a human being for me. For example, for the Brad Pitt character, it was this guy wearing one of those masks. I knew he was a hypochondriac. He wears one of these masks at the airport. He sees somebody else coming towards him who's also wearing a mask, and he salutes the guy. And it tells you he has bad social skills because he's reaching out in public to somebody he shouldn't be reaching out in. It tells you he's a hypochondriac, a neurotic. It tells you he's also lonely in that neurosis, so he's reaching out to other people. You know, and that explains a little bit why he helps these guys, even though he's no real tangible connection to them. They're just neighbors. So, you know, I like to find that. So I, I find one of those for every single character. So for Annapurna's character, it's the the credenza with the breast pump on it. Here's this woman in the bank. She's got no nothing on the office credenza whatsoever but the breast pump, right? Which tells you she has a sort of... And breast pumps are weird. Like they have this <laughs> mechanical steampunk-type quality to them, right? And so here's this mechanical thing, and it's reduced motherhood to this mechanical thing, which tells you that she's sort of... She's in her femininity. She's not comfortable being a real, truly a woman in the workplace because she's not allowed to be, right? And at the same time, you know, it's this utilitarian thing. Her children... There's no picture of her child. It's just that... So you do things like that. And I, I could give you for every character what that thing was. And then what I do is I, uh, I, I measure everything against it. I actually learned this from Russell Crowe. I produced a movie with Russell once, and Russell, because he does so many things in different accents, he finds, he sends his terrific voice coach uh, uh, to to record someone from the region, like say this was a movie he set in Buffalo, so he found a Buffalo cop speaking online and got a little bit of dialogue. And I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. But maybe the line was, and she was coming through the door. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he, he basically then has this as a mantra. She was coming through the door. She was, and he gets up before he acts or repeats this to him. He puts him it puts him in the world mm-hmm. and he compares everything he does against that line and the things that it evokes. And so that's what I do. I take that that thing, that image, and I just, you know, the characters, what the clothing I might give them, the lines I might give them, the emotional choices they might make, I compare everything to that so it gives me a sort of consistent through line for the character, mm-hmm. right? So that's how I start with character. And so you just kind of start trying to figure out, okay, what is this person? Who is this person? And then in this particular case, because we didn't have anything outside of finance, I started with a Florida section. Um, because the Florida section was was wholly made up. It was the thing that was not in the book. It, it, in the book, uh, Michael refers to them going down to Florida and ch- checking mortgages, but that's mm-hmm. all. So we made up all that stuff because we wanted to broaden it beyond finance people to show the effect on mortgage brokers, on um, the real estate brokers, the you know, brokers. yeah, the renters, you know, the stripper, you know, mm-hmm. um, all those people. So um, yeah, so so starting with the Florida section. 
And that actually changed the tone actually a little bit. You know, when I when I first started, I had a more of a Milos Forman uh, style, and you know, in my head, which is a little, uh, which the satire is quite quite uh, light. Mm-hmm. It's not very overt. And then when I did the Florida section, I thought, oh, actually, this world can sustain some pretty heavy direct satire. You know, pretty heavy direct comedy. Uh, and and that section's interesting because it shows the difference between Adam and I. And when Adam came in, he took that satire and he moved it into farce. <laughs> and that was a genius move for reasons that we'll talk about. But, like, he added the the alligator. Is the, what he added to the Florida section was this great alligator. So, so you know, you kind of, you, you know, we... You you you, you kind of get a feeling for what the tone is. So you do character first, and you find the tone, and it usually helps to write a little bit to find the tone. Yeah, the the book though was straight reporting. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't you're, really. You're yeah. putting that satire. Yeah, yeah, we're not. Yeah, it was not. Project. Michael would never deem to do satire because that's not right. legitimate. But you I can't mean, make fun of your characters, and he would never do that. Right. You know? But another yeah. writer could come into attack this book and and. Do that I mean, Michael yeah. was that, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we, you know, the thing we sold eventually to to to, uh, to Paramount is we're going to laugh as much as we can on our way to getting pissed off, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and why that approach, though? Uh, because it felt like the thing that hadn't been done. A because we'd had you know a lot of other stuff, and that's also these there are these in the book these great absurdities, and that was what was interesting. You know, mm-hmm. the actual reportage was what was fascinating, but I thought what what is emotional is the absurdity of this, mm-hmm. the craziness of this. The fact the richest people on the planet create this system for getting richer and then they are victimized by their own system. I mean it just the irony of it was too Shakespearean and too big <laughs> not to sort of cash sure. in on. But it felt like you had to do it in a pretty comedic way. Now in fairness to Adam, Adam's comedic sensibility is bigger, and, and he really took it to the moon and really made it work. And I, and I think probably if you were to read my original draft before he came involved, you would argue it didn't wasn't funny enough. It didn't you know it didn't quite get there you know because because you know we, we needed to go even further in the bigness of the comedy. You know, uh, mine was probably too cleanly pitched at your average New Yorker reader, which is not a not a good. Place I was going to say. I mean, yeah, it sounds yeah. like what you're describing is much more literary. Yeah, it was a little satirical. You know, so, you know, satire is interesting. You know, satire, and I may be rambling too much. If I am, stop me. But satire, satire is inherently a little smirky. Mm-hmm. And it supposes a certain sort of superiority. That's why it doesn't work very well often. And what's so interesting about farce is it's generous. Farce, mm-hmm. you know, farce is full of. Uh, Full of you know, full of this desire to to to, to make you laugh. Yeah, it's you know, not exclusionary. Yeah, you know, one of my pet theories, and it's probably utter bullshit, but I'm going to stick with it, <laughs> is that dramatic writers want to be respected, and comedic writers want to be loved. And I think if we pretend that that theory is correct for just a second, that's sort of a difference between how I write and how Adam writes. I'm, I'm much more pretentious. I'm much more concerned that you respect. <laughs> you know, that we I show you how you know the complexity of this world and. He just has this lovely, you know, entertainers, you know, sure. you know, uh, improv stand-up guy's yeah. desire to get up and just make you laugh, and and he's such a smart human being that when he does it, it transcends Forrest into something else because it's just as smart and satire, as satire in some ways even smarter. Uh, so um, yeah, so that so but but the move was always to make it pretty comedic, mm-hmm. you know. Well, this um, this is gonna derail us for a minute, okay. but I want to kind of get into this. Um, how does that dramatic writer approach jive with stuff you've done in the past? Well, you see, Love and Other Drugs was, was a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there was that. I mean, um, you know, 
obviously the thing about being a writer in Hollywood is what you write and what ends up on the screen are not always the same thing. Sure. Right? So um, there was probably a lot more comedy uh, in um, The Interpreter than what ended up there. Sidney is, you know, at least at that point in his life, was a pretty serious guy mm-hmm. um, and was probably less comfortable with genre play. He was more wanting to do Three Days of the Condor, sure. you know. Um, uh, Life of David Gale didn't really have that. It had a few sort of amusing beats, but didn't really have any, you know, I mean, a death penalty movie. Oddly, that wasn't funny. I don't, I don't know. Sure. It's strange. Strange how that happened. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know. Um, but even, like, left to your own devices. Right. What, what is your voice? Yeah. I think my voice would, I, I, what I, what is, what is my voice? One never knows what one's voice is. Um, but, you know, I think my voice is, you know, I, you know, I like Coen Brothers stuff. I love that kind of, you know, that that the thing where it's where it's real and it's textured and it's grounded, but it has this edge, this subtext of, um, you know, not being amusing, but but being a little wry, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, where you let people exist in their own kind of, you know. Um, and their own specificity as human beings, and that, well, that, that and that, has, ama- and that sort of yeah, we, we we sort of marvel and we are amused, and I, that's what I sort of yeah. love. Yeah, I mean that has bring it back to the big show. Sure. That Coen Brothers stuff does have as part of that edge, pointing to the absurd and accepting yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Know? And I feel like that, like you say, it's the comedy leading to anger. Yep, because it's so insane. You can only laugh. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh. Something I'm curious about with this film is so you you zero in on these characters, but then what seems really hard to me is tracing the character arcs with the macro of the story. Yeah, no, that's tough. That that was. A, I mean, you had the natural out playing out of the market, right? Where they so make you have it, a frame. yeah, yeah, you do. You would have to make this investment, and then there's what's called a short squeeze, where the uh, where the banks that own these contracts pretend like they're not worth what they're worth, while they dump their own position. So you had that organically, and so on a plot level, it was okay. Mm-hmm. It was really more about in the exposition of the film and the narrative flow of the film of how do you communicate this complicated information uh, and still keep the audience engaged, yeah. right? And I have to say that I did not succeed at. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, you can tell in the Jenga game sequence, which was mine. I mean, it took me a week to come up with a damn Jenga game, right? Absolutely. And I love that, that. That feels like one of those things that you sit there as a writer, and then, of course, this exactly. is it. Exactly. Sitting there exactly. So I tried to do that with all the other financial concepts. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, embedding them in the, in the texture of the scenes, just, it didn't, it was too hard. Mm-hmm. Just you know, even even people who are really interested in doing it just said, you know, it's just I get I get long. I just I don't know. And so when Adam came along, he said, no, no, <laughs> we make it really simple. And it was a genius move. We we literally have someone look at the camera into the camera and tell us mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And the minute he did that, it's just it's like that classic thing in screenwriting where where the damn breaks and then just everything flows and the studio got excited because I said yes okay that we can get past that sure. and you know it, it made it, it made it so much easier to flow the, the story you could be much more elliptical because you weren't working to communicate context in the scenes the way you know we only have one then that's the scene obviously where they present the, the, the deal with the jingo that's the only scene where inside the film characters are explaining to other characters what's going on everything else is, is straight and it just was so... Once he did it, it was so free, right? You could do so much with it. And, um, 
and that and that really made it work. And then Adam added to that these other meta layers. So that's just one meta layer. We have the, then we have Ryan breaking the fourth wall, which is delicious, and his voice and the voice over there is so special, and Ryan's so good at it. Uh, and then we have you know when they have you know the text on the screen. You know, we have the quotes and all this other stuff that got layered on, almost as if we're going to take that same joyous, you know, too muchness. You know, that sort of, you know what I mean? Like that, that, that manic, farcical, pleasurable quality of telling people information and just take it to the moon on those meta levels as well. Well, that seems like something that you couldn't have come to in the script phase because it feels like Adam knew what he... Yeah. The tone of this... Yeah, and, and, and this is why Adam's such a genius is, is because he's so collaborative that once people got that idea, they all came not to perform but to play. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you know, it's amazing. If I were to go through in this film and sort of pip and tell and try and figure out how much of the lines in here are actually improv, mm-hmm. I think we would all be shocked by how much it is. I mean... So much of that, you know, Ryan's relationship to his assistant is not in any script, right? Yeah, what happened was, you know, the press has written a bit about this, but what happened was, you know, because he's collaborative, Adam wanted to get feedback from the real guys. And the real guy that Ryan Gosling is playing said, wait a minute, I would never hand out key cards like that. I'd have an assistant do that. I'm not their bitch. Come on, you know? And so um, basically what he did then is he, he got some extra... Right and and pulled him in and he and he and Ryan worked with him and they had this lovely weird relationship that emerged in that first scene in Vegas was the first thing they shot the shot started in Vegas and then they took him to New Orleans and they put him in all the other scenes with with Ryan and that relationship emerged and it's one of the most delightful things <laughs> in the, and in a lot of it was improv and then Adam shaping it and molding it of course. Um, but so here's this guy who literally is in, basically an extra who gets a film career, <laughs> right? You know, by by virtue of just being being on site. So so Adam so so he you know he took he took Greg Littman, who's the guy that Jerry Bear is based on. He took you know loosely took Greg's note, and then Greg did this other thing where he said, you know I would never hang out with those people. I have fashion friends. And <laughs> Fine. You just write down what you want me to say in the movie now. And, and he literally did. And then Littman, let when he came to the premiere, he was like, you played me, didn't you, buddy? And, then, and I was like, a little bit, yeah. Because he just basically let Littman define his character. Yeah. And it's such an interesting interesting thing about happy accidents in film. What emerges from that character is this guy that Michael Lewis describes as the unreliable narrator who happens to be telling the truth. And that quality wasn't in the book, and it wasn't in any of the scripts. It's a reflection of the fact the actor playing the role has gotten notes from the real person who doesn't like the act, what the actor is doing and tries to incorporate that attitude back into the film. That's wild. That's genius. That that's is, that's filmmaking. That's such great stuff. I mean, this none of this could have been accomplished without the blueprint. I mean, the yeah, sure. character yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that you zeroed in on from the very beginning is still there. Oh, which absolutely. Which is really interesting to me. And he was always the most fun. You know, the mouthiest character, you know. I mean, we all have a little bit of love for that Wolf of Wall Street, sleazy, slightly sleazy banker, maybe fully sleazy, depending on who's playing them. <laughs> and, you know, and this was, this was, this is one of those characters. But what was always fun was to give him, and he has a little bit, of, a little bit of soulfulness, a little bit of woundedness, you know, um, and 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 the guy who who knows he looks sleazy because his hair is slicked back and he's a banker and he's got suspenders on or whatever that is, but is fighting against that representation even while embodying it. Yeah, that gloss of self-awareness exactly. sort of endears him to us. It does. It does, and it's an actually interesting lesson in the film in general because when we turn the, the script into Paramount. 
initially they said, guys, I, we don't know how we make this. These people, none of these people are likable. But once Adam came up with breaking the fourth wall and then having these, these people do, you know, having these interstitials, it's as if the film, the narrative voice of the film becomes a character in the film. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the filmmaker becomes a character in the film, right? And so what that does is that that's who we trust. That's who we like. So it takes over our likability. So what the film does is it hands off our emotional connection from Baum at one point to the filmmaker. And that allows us to sort of exist with Baum in this space of, oh, We've been rooting for you to do this thing. Now you're about to do it, and we don't like you to do mm-hmm. that. We don't want you to do that. And so we can sort of feel his self-hatred because we're allowed to. But that's yeah. a complicated maneuver yeah. for an audience to make it and is. for yeah. you guys as filmmakers who yeah. trust the audience. Yeah. No, we always knew that the difficulty would be, here again, telling the story of this guy. But it was the only way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. This guy who emotionally came to hate what he was doing as we are rooting for him to do it. Right, you know, yeah. it's and so and so that was the only way to pull this off, and and I'm very proud of that because that idea I think fundamentally structures our emotional connection to the film, uh, and so so it's yeah. it's something that I think really works well, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Iceman and um, Carell's performance because it's so vulnerable and so you know, so spot on, really carries us on that journey beautifully. So we believe both parts of it. We believe he's all in, and then we believe he's actually turning against himself and hates what he's about to do and refuses to sell because it means he's going to be just another one of them. Yeah. Uh, all, all of these uh, aspects you're describing, I think, wouldn't work if the film didn't show confidence. Yes. You know, um, how... Was that there in your script? Did you feel confident? In yeah, your yeah. I mean, I mean the versions. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about doing your research is you can feel really confident sure. about. You know, I mean, we had some pretty harsh stuff about Alan Greenspan at certain mm-hmm. points. I mean, we, we, you know, we, you know, we, we staked a truth claim in this film that is unambiguous, and you can only do that if you feel like you own the discourse enough that you've read enough. Um, that you can that you can do so. I, I have the benefit of having in, in New York some really great first readers mm-hmm. uh, who know these worlds really well and know literature really well. Um, you know, and and that helps. I mean, it really it really you know. I use a guy named uh, 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 to read my scripts occasionally. A guy named Henry Fender uh, at the New Yorker, who's the editorial director of the New Yorker. And Henry's just one of those great New York geniuses. And um, just, you know, if I give him a script, he just has fantastic notes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who I've worked with before uh, at, over at HBO, is a good friend of mine. He gave good notes. So I have the benefit of having some pretty strong intellectuals who I trust, you know, read stuff. And that helps. What, you know, what yeah. kind of notes did you get from these? From my friends? To yeah. direction. It was all about you've got to turn the complexity down. You know, yeah, it was always about we got you got to make it a little, little, little cleaner. You know, a little, little less. You know, you. I I made the mistake of not explaining up front what a mortgage bond was, mm-hmm. or even what a short position is. I started with um, um, uh, Burry walking into Goldman Sachs to buy you know a swap product on mortgages, and when Adam came along, he said, "No, no, we have to have that Lou Ranieri section." Mm-hmm. Uh, so would people even know what a mortgage bond is, sure. you know, and, and how it works. And, and you know, it's so interesting about craft of filmmaking. 
You know, you change something in the first five pages of the script, and it changes everything. <laughs> and that really helped. I mean, once he made that turn, it made it made it a lot more understandable. You know, the pace of that initial draft must have been insane. It must have been so fast. There was so much. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there was a lot of information. Yeah, it was it was too much. I, mean, I can yeah. understand. The but it's always you know, I always I always believe you're better off because you're not going to be able once you need to make something more complex from something simpler. You're not going to be able to do that well. You got to kind of be in the world fully and all its glory. You're never going to have the, the the experience of being immersed in a world at its ultimate level of complexity more than the first time you write about it, mm-hmm. right? And so I kind of always believe, yeah, just do the balls to the wall script first. Just go, make it hard, make it complex, and then pare back, simplify, simplify, simplify. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's true of not just complex information, but just all the stuff. I mean, that original Florida section, I think, was maybe eight, ten pages, and it ended up being four, maybe six. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, you, you do things like that, or I'm trying to think of another really good example of, of how that works. You know, um, you know, the sequence in Vegas was, was probably, I don't know, it's pretty long. It was probably 18 pages, wow. you know. And, you know, the sequence with, the, with, the, with um, Jamie talking to the woman from the SEC who ends up having sex with the banker mm-hmm. from Goldman, right? You know, I mean, there was a version of that originally that was five pages long, which was this catalog of all the problems and all the sins of the SEC <laughs> and why that, you know what I mean? And, you know, you know and, and it just got reduced to very simple of, hey, I can't talk to you. I'm going to go have sex with that banker, right? <laughs> which is like a perfect way of saying exactly. they're literally in bed together, right? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, so That's it's funny. amazing how, you know, how if you if you own the complexity first, you can always sure. pull it back. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. We did, you know, it's funny in talking about this, and this often happens, is we skipped over the physical writing part of it. So you okay. do your homework. Right. You kind of lay out where you're going. What kind of, did you have to turn in an outline? Did, did no, I just gave, uh, we had a wonderful, terrific, terrific creative executive at Paramount named David Bobert. Who's now at Sony? And if you do, if I can give you any advice, <laughs> writers of the future, go to David Bobert <laughs> because he he and I would just do draft after draft. It didn't it didn't matter how small it was. He would go with me and in in, in in that lovely thing of I'm not trying to hit a target he already has in his head. Mm-hmm. We were actually That's working right. on it together to find it. You know, real so yeah, real collaboration. And of course, Jeremy and Didi are famously mm-hmm. you know the best. So it, that worked really well. So. Um, yeah, so I turned in on like a one page. Okay. You know, this is going to be a Milos Forman esque look at this, and it's going to be this character who you know does on this journey and this character. Pretty much what's in the movie, uh, in in macro terms, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's all. That's all they made me do because I knew we had to find it a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, and then we just sat, just sat and started writing. Uh, and what did your days look like writing this? Um, and were they typical of your? Yeah, they're pretty process? typical. You know, at the time I had an office, which I don't have right now. Uh, but I would, uh, I was living in Manhattan. I've moved upstate, so at the time I, I'd go into the office. I'm not much good before lunch. I just my brain doesn't work. You know, um, I'm best at eleven o'clock at night. You know, uh, so, so what do you do before lunch? Knowing that I go to the gym. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, now that I've gotten older, I go to the gym. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I go to the gym and play with my kids, take my kids to school, whatever, okay. and I do you research. Live your life. Yeah, in my life, I do a lot of the things you might do, other people might do at night, mm-hmm. and do research, you know, and research is really fun, because it gets you excited about the world, so that, you know, two or three hours in the morning, I'll do research. I'll start writing at lunch, usually by longhand, I'll, I'll sit, because you know, I'm in a restaurant, mm-hmm. and I'll sort of start writing, making notes, and sort of just, you know, imagining things, and then I'll hit the office, and start typing, and that'll go to about seven, 
So that's a pretty good run. It's a pretty good run, and that's it's generally in the thick of it seven days a week too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm one of those people who procrastinates, so I feel perpetually guilty about not working enough. <laughs> so what I end up doing is I end up not working for a while, and then working way too much for three months, and then not working for three months. I have sure. kind of that that rhythm sometimes to my life. Um, but yeah, so so the process, you know, for this particular project was was that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a big believer in the Hemingway thing of keep something for the next day you're excited mm-hmm. about to help you get into it. So I'll always stop when I find some little moments I'm excited about writing. Okay, go oh, good. I'll I'll start with that tomorrow. So it keeps my energy. You know, I'm excited to start again the next day. It's not like oh blank page. God, yeah. I hate this. You know. Yeah, that's a good yeah. approach. Yeah. Um, and that, about how long did it take you to get through that initial draft? Uh, I want to say three or four months, but then there was another three months of taking all this density and reducing it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it was probably five months from the time I was hired till Jeremy and Dee Dee turned in something to Paramount. Okay. Yeah. Is that, it's interesting, I mean, you, you've primarily done features, but you've done some TV too, right? Yeah, I've shot, I've shot a few pilots. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Mostly I mean, at HBO, yeah. Getting to take six, eight months on a script seems not unusual in features. No, it's not, yeah. Um, but how, but remember, you know, the other thing about TV is obviously you're you're riffing on a world you already know, sure. right? So it's a little different. So the pilots, you know, obviously can take longer. Right. Um, but I've never run a show, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> um, so so um, pilots tend to take a little less. You know, yeah. a drama pilot can take two or three months, you know. Yeah. What's hard about shooting pilots, though, is... You don't get paid. You know, you, you, it's this weird irony of, you know, you write this thing and you're busy casting it and running around the world shooting in Berlin or whatever for a year to make this thing. But you're not really getting paid to do that. Yeah. And so if it doesn't go forward, you're like, oh, I just invested a whole year of my life and I haven't been writing and i got to get some money. And if you shoot pilots back to back, it's kind of deadly, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only thing I would say about the TV business is the upside for us as writers is fantastic and the creative control is even more fantastic. But... It is it is one of those things where you got to you know if you have a family you kind of have to make financial plans for how you're going to deal with the fact there's a period when it's first getting started where there's not really money involved. Interesting. Yeah. Um, is there something about the screenplay format that you like? Have you written prose? Uh, not no not not no no I haven't. Um, I think you know I think people my friends would tell you I I tend to ramble. Uh, a lot verbally like whenever we do public things you know public discussions together I tend to be the guy who's like like stop stop you know I, and yet I'm truly underwrite everything right <laughs> and something about my own self-hatred on the page reduces everything I, I, I just love to like underwrite and like I, I work really hard to shrink it 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 and so um, I, I love the economy of um I have a little bit of the actor's thing of when I'm in the theater listening to my own dialogue, I want to crawl under a seat. You know what I mean? So maybe maybe it relates to that, this whole thing of just not mm-hmm. loving to see my own <laughs> self less of it yeah, present there. You know, and so 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 that so, you know, but I just I love the economy of a good description, you know, or um, you know, a slug line that I mean a, a description line that, mm-hmm. you know, is just immediately communicates um I love the form. I love the screenplay form. I really do. I don't know why. It's an idea I find very moving. That screen, the, the idea that the screenplay form for some people is just the perfect expression of how you want to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, it's very... It has to be honest, right? It's a, it's a document... It's a blueprint, but it yeah. has to be a sales tool. Yeah. It has to be translated to a number of different people yeah. and different kinds of people. Yeah, that's it's true. An interesting thing. So yeah, that's true. Is really key. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's almost as if you go through the a widening of meaning, and you get through the sea of this of all these potential meanings, and on the other shore is something very specific that encapsulates everything. You know what I mean? And you just have to find it. What is the <laughs> one little you know five sentence you know five word sentence that really captures this space or this person or this moment and. Mm-hmm. Something about working on that for an hour is hugely pleasurable. I have no idea why. <laughs> well, it sounds like it is again that solving those of a puzzle that yeah. exists. Yeah, it's maybe. finding a, it's chipping away, right, and yeah. finding the statue underneath. Yeah, and maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe that's exactly it. Yeah, it's well put. <laughs> um, how did you get started? How, what was the first thing you got paid to write? Uh, and how did that come about? I. Um, used to be a philosophy professor. Mm-hmm. I lived in Vienna in Austria. There is a show that's shot in Austria called Commissar X, which is about a dog, which is a cop. A co- you know, it's like Beethoven type thing. But sure. Yeah. And a friend of mine in, wrote an episode in German. Uh, and this show actually is, is famous. He wasn't on it at the time, but Christoph Waltz, Really? was this number two cop on this show for about five <laughs> years. It, this episode occurred in the season just before he came, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, so, so Commissar Rex I, was the first thing I'd written in, in German, uh, and it's not on IMDb because I wrote under the name Chuck Randolph at the time as opposed to Charles Randolph. Wow. So there's a little... And so was it your friend brought you in? Yeah, she was a well-known journalist, and, and, and we sort of got to know the producer of the show, and, he, and we said, oh, well, let us do this, and, and oh, he let funny. us do it. Yeah, it was fun. So I did that, and at the time I would teach uh, sort of cultural studies, aesthetic philosophy, and those sorts of things. So I would do different, um, different um, sort of practices in various cultural forms every year, and I did, you know, I did, you know, documentaries one year. I did feature films one year. And the year I did feature films, I came out here to do a course at USC on the status of American genres. And I did it with uh, a guy named Drew USC, a professor named Drew. Sorry, Drew, I can't remember your last name. It's been 15 years. Um, and Drew and I did this, and we would do these lectures on Tuesday, and then on Thursday we would interview writers at the Writers Guild Foundation about the genres. And I think I got to know the Fairley brothers or actually one of their producers. You know, I met the Fairleys and then one of the producers and I went to dinner and he said, oh, you should, you should write us a script. That'd be great. And so I said, fantastic. The Fairley brothers want me to write a script. So that summer I wrote a script, a, a, a sort of homage to John Waters called Fat, F-A-T, mm-hmm. and um, all about fat shaming and the baby beauty contest in the south or some crazy thing and of course I turned it in over there at the Fairley Brothers and they never responded never heard of it but I did know someone who kind of knew someone at CAA and I got a young guy named Sperling Reich who was just coming off a desk being franchised as an assistant to rep me <laughs> and uh, we went out with this pitch that became the life of David Gale so that was 97, 98, and that's sort of how I started. On those early scripts, uh, on the German script and even on Fat, I mean, I imagine you had spent so much time watching these things and talking about yeah. these, the media that you had internalized these storytelling yeah. aspects. Yeah, I mean, I think all writers, unless you're 
precocious or you're, you know, you're from New York and come from a certain kind of Upper West Side Jewish family where, you know, education is valued in that way. Um, you know, I think a lot of us writers come with a certain sort of suspicion that we're not going to be any good at it, or, you know, or, or embarrassment about wanting to do it. And so you find ways to, like, take all the magazines and read all the books and you know do all that stuff before you actually sit down and start writing yeah. you know and I think I was it was kind of a version of that I think I had always wanted to be in the film business but I didn't want to admit that to myself <laughs> sure. and so I just sort of you know I became a professor and I studied genres and aesthetic philosophy and film <laughs> theory and all that cultural studies stuff and all that film theory stuff instead of just sitting down when I was younger and writing a script, mm. you know? And so I was 33 before I did so. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, and the minute it happened, I left all that other, other stuff behind. <laughs> but, but it was helpful. I mean, some of that stuff I still use. Some of, that, some of those ideas I still use. Mm-hmm. Well, of course. I mean, yeah. it, it, they all have to be in there. Yeah. They all make up you as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the David Gale experience must have been an enormous learning experience for you. It was. You know... Uh, Adam Parker directed that film, uh, and it, he was really generous to me. Um, Alan Parker, um, you know, uh, being a Brit and I being new, we probably made some mistakes about, you know, uh, our representations of Texas. They were a little too didactic or whatever. Um, and it was also my, really my first drama. Uh, so there are parts of the film that are a little uneven, although Laura Linney is just utterly fantastic in it. Um, and Kevin's good too, but it's just, it just, there, she has this transcendence there in a couple of scenes. Um, but it was, it was a learning experience. You know, it was, you know, it's one of the, you never write a script thinking, oh, it's going to do that. You always think, well, and then I'm going to be the most celebrated writer of all time, <laughs> you know, and there will be, you know, buildings at Paramount named after me. And of course, you put something out in the world, and the response is, eh, "Eh, not really. No, that's not. That's not. That's not perfect." You know, and it's always sort of so devastating. And so, so it's sort of the experience of it becomes tainted by that. But in retrospect, yeah, I learned a lot. And Alan, who is a lovely filmmaker, and I think history will be extremely kind to Alan Parker because he's made some fantastic movies. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you know, I, he was he really taught me a lot. Yeah, all the directors I've worked with, you know, Sidney Pollack taught me a lot. It's yeah, I, mean, I can't imagine what yeah. you get from Sydney Hall. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. All those. You know, I've worked a lot with Steven Spielberg, uh, Ridley. I've worked a bit. You know, I've worked with all of them. Gosh, you <laughs> can't name a big director. Milos. I mean, I, you know, they're they're all. You know, they all. I'm working with Michael Mann right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they all they all bring such a, you know, such a different body of knowledge in that generation than our generation has. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just because they're such different, the director functions differently, you know. Um, but yeah, I've learned a lot from all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's something interesting to me about you know you entering the business at 33, having yep. lived this life yep. and and knowing how to tell a story, but suddenly being faced with one the practical side, which you've touched on already yep. with David Gale, but also the business side, yeah, which is it takes learning. It's it's it really does a weird and unpredictable thing. Yeah, it really does. You know, um, it helps to have good reps and have a good manager and and, and, and good agents. Um, and I think the the business side is always a moving target. You know, it always evolves and changes so much. But I tend to think the people who've done best in retrospect are not the people who like me 
waited till you know they had some official formal thing from a big institution with a big director. I kind of got ghettoized in my career very early on with these massive big directors. And it was great, and I learned a lot. But I also look at the guys who just started making their own stuff, and you know, and and shopping it around, and doing it online. And mm-hmm. I almost feel like those guys have more practical experience than I do, you know. And, and so I almost feel like that's also, you know, the, the beautiful thing about the internet is it does provide, you know, means of access to to uh, to, you know, to an audience, and that's probably better, you know. Well, yeah. uh, there's something to. I mean, it sounds like this is what makes. You and McKay a good team, is he did have that. You're right. He made yeah. his own stuff, yeah. but yeah, you can't. have this this yeah. other side of it, and it's yeah. the friction or whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. That makes something great. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think you're, that's well put. I think you're absolutely right. I'm very good at this. You are good um, at this. <laughs> Shockingly good at this. Um, after David Gale, or even yeah. even now, are you out pitching? On projects, is that did you take that route or are you exploring? Yeah, yeah I love pitching. I love do pitching. You? Yeah, I fa- I just, Nobody loves that. I love pitching. Why do you love it? Because I get an audience for an hour of really smart people. Um, here's it's why like I, teaching again. Yeah, it is. Here's why I love it. I love it because you get to take an idea to 10 different audiences of people who are in your business and get their feedback. Hmm. And their feedback, if, it's, if you've done your homework, is invaluable. The people who don't like pitching usually are either people who just natively don't like speaking in, in public or they're people who haven't quite figured it out yet and they're kind of cheating a little of the variables. If you've really done your homework and you walk in ready to tell a story and knowing what that story is, it, it it's a lot of fun. And, it, and just to get their feedback is really helpful. And there's nothing more fun than like arranging a two-day pitch Session where a pitch, where, you know, where you're doing four or five studios a day. You're going in the car from meeting to meeting to meeting, and then you sell one in the room, and you get to take that information to the next one and say, "We just sold it at Fox. Here it is. What do you think?" And they're like, "Oh, it just sold it at Fox." You know, like and it builds, and you know, you're you're in, in the car, you know, fielding offers in between. I mean, it's such an exciting old Hollywood thing. You know what I mean, right? Like I'm getting a little bit of a bidding war going on an idea, and 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 I always I always love that. I always Tell love me, that process. I mean, I, I feel like I can imagine what you're pitches sound like but right. tell me uh, if you would a a specific time when it went well it went how you thought it would go yeah my first the pitch on life of David Gale which for those of you who have not seen the film is about a guy who's essentially arranging his own execution to prove that innocents do get executed which is a weird thing in the 80s and 90s where people claim that no innocents were ever executed. We know now with DNA and the Innocence Project that that's not the case, but at the time that was a big argument against the death penalty. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, that was a good example of it. It was a really tight 35-minute pitch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were, you know, you tell them the story and people get tears in their eyes. And, that, and you know, that, 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 that's, that's fun. You have to get there, though. I mean, the mistake most people don't make is they don't practice the pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to just practice it. Your first three or four times, are, it's just going to be a disaster. You know? Do you script it? Do you? It's pre-scripted. I mean, it's not word for word because that'll get you in trouble because you'll right. become too married to, to your terminology. But it is beat for beat mm-hmm. out there. And the nice thing about trying it is you see what people respond to. And you're like, oh gosh, I'm spending way too much time in this bullshit in the first act or whatever. So you you get this feeling. Of, like, it's like working with an audience. Yeah. You know, you get a feeling for what the rhythm is and what works. Yeah. That and makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, was that one where it did sell in the room and oh, you had yeah. to have that victory yeah. tour? Yeah, it was a hard one. It took a while because I was a neophyte. And uh, it's a hard subject. It's a hard I mean, subject. It's not something... There's no dinosaurs now. Nobody's yeah. going to jump at this. 
Yeah, but but I've been lucky. Most everything I've ever gone out with has sold. There've been a couple things, you know, that didn't. Um, and that's in the feature world. And mm-hmm. TV, it's always harder because TV networks kind of know what they want, and mm-hmm. you know, you, you just could be just it could be the best pitch in the world. But if they're not looking for that this right. season, then it's not going to happen. And that's true of premium cable as well. That's mm-hmm. not just you know, that's not just. Uh, you know, the old network. Oh, of course, so yeah. much is out of your control yeah. that I, you, know, you can just kind of do the best thing you can do. Yeah, but it is true that features, if it's a great story in features, studios will, will buy it mm-hmm. and, and try and get it done because it's just a great story. Because their self-understanding is it's a one-off you know, mm-hmm. investment. It's not like it's a whole, they're committing $100 million. They're committing whatever it is, 20, 30, 40, 50, if it's a smaller film. And so there's that. But also, the, they feel like they have a sort of artistic self-consciousness with how they approach, approach mm-hmm. their jobs. Whereas, you know, they, you know, um, you know, sometimes in television, the, the art is important, the commerce is important too. They think of sure. themselves as programmers and it's a slightly different job than a, you know, than a mogul. It's more know? immediately a product. Yeah. But also, I mean, look, you been around long enough that you've seen the feature side change yeah. where I mean David Gale could may not be able to get made to yeah that's true that's certainly true you know it's, it's, we, we're, we bounce back a lot I mean Ted Hope has you know got a boatload of money over there at Amazon and wants mm-hmm. to make good stuff um, so there's a lot of you know uh, I've always been impressed you know even at a studio like Paramount which is famously a little meat and potatoes in terms of you know the types of films how Brad Gray and Mark Evans, they really want to do this other stuff as well. And they, mm-hmm. they, they feel the mandate to contribute to the culture. And, and right. you know, and that's, you know, that's the best possible world, right, where studios know, okay, we have to have these commercial products, but at the same time, we have to have, you know, we, as it's important that we also have this other product. And it doesn't have to be a specialty label necessarily, but we're going to mm-hmm. do other things that, you know, we're going to do Charlie Kaufman. You know, yeah. I mean, that's anybody who's making a Charlie Kaufman movie is a force for good in this world, you know? Sure. But you've also got, I mean, it, it is sort of a brand name. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, you know, it, it's, it, there's money. I mean, there's a lot of money right now, even in even TV, yes, but even in features. I mean, Amazon, is, you know, those Netflix films, and they, they, sure. they all are hungry. So. Yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time to be going out. Yeah. It really is. Uh, and if you, and if you're good and you keep, you know, it's the thing I always say, cream rises. If you, Keep yeah. knocking at do- doors; one will open. How? I don't know if you'll know this offhand, but roughly, how many screenplays have you written, made or not made? I mean, it's the it's the practice makes perfect. Yeah, right? fifteen, maybe fifteen, right. maybe a little more. For being in the industry, maybe ten years. Right? Yeah, no longer. But maybe it's more than that. If you could, if you include TV, which I do. Okay, maybe it's 20. It's probably closer to 20. I don't, I don't really do... I rewrote Munich, but I don't really do a lot of rewrites, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that's an interesting thing, too, because that's yeah. a big part of the feature writer job. Yeah. Is you're often given these assignments, someone's been fired, or you're just on set, or whatever it yeah. is, but you've, you've avoided that. Yeah. I, yeah I, just, I like the research. I like the world. Mm-hmm. I like to feel like I'm... You know, I'm, I'm at heart, I'm a professor, right? So I, I kind of want to know everything I can about a thing, mm-hmm. and... Um, and also the types of rewrites are usually bigger, you know, action-y or, or sure. um, you know, animated or uh, superhero type things, which just, you know, not, you know, not something I, not a, those are not genres that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. Right. Have you pitched on those? On those big tentpole movies? 
I have, uh, although it's been sort of more quirky takes on those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Uh, I try to avoid horse races, you know. Um, I feel like what happens in a horse race, if you're one of five riders bringing in, you know, for this Marvel franchise a concept, is they sort of they sort of take from all the riders a direction and you get a lot more limitations put on you than you or otherwise would sure. because they they feel a little bit like they own the landscape of potential ideas <laughs> for this and it gives them a lot more confidence to say well we should do this thing we can and, cobble together yeah, something from what they've kind of I, mean, I don't think they steal directly I don't think it's that it's no. just they identify trends and they sort of start to feel like oh well two people said that so that has, has, that's probably a smart idea uh, so uh, so I think you know I think I sort of like to avoid those, but yeah, there are, there have been you know, um, you know, s- some things and you know like you know um, th- that I yeah that I pursued that mm-hmm. are bigger bigger genres sci-fi especially. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Lyman and I are working on something right now. It's a pretty big sci-fi thing, you know. Uh, I mean, and that seems like it's the kind of thing that makes sense for you. It feels like as much as you are drawn to characters, you're also an ideas-based writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which sci-fi, obviously. Yeah, yeah, sci-fi is fantastic for that, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, There are are narratives, there's the sort of comic book narratives I'm not good at, in Mm -hmm. part because there's an inherent relationship to character often in those worlds. and it's not that it's simplistic. It's not. They can be actually quite complex characters. But they are characters who are painted with a relatively broad brush. You know? mm-hmm. And what I find so interesting is small, prosaic moments like Mark Baum and his guys go down to Florida to ask you know, about these mortgage things. And these guys are kind of dicks talking. And they walk, they'd say, excuse us, they walk across the room and say... Why are they confessing to us? And and the other guys said they're not confessing; they're bragging. Mm-hmm. Like you stop a scene, we yeah. have this conversation over here about this thing. That's the moments I love, like these these lovely textured human moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, you just the pacing of those movies doesn't really give you that much. Sure. You can get a one or two to like give it some flavor, like disc the way disco functions in The Martian. <laughs> but you know, I like I like worlds built out of that stuff. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, are th- are there moments like that one in anything you've worked on, but I'm, I'm still primarily interested in the big short, um, that you feel like, is you best represented on the page or in the film? In the big short? Yeah, I mean, the scene where... where the, the scene where... Um, I'm trying to think what Adam would say, because in fairness, I think Adam would be a better person to ask that question. I think Adam would probably argue that the scene where... Ryan Gosling is presenting the deal to the guys and that sort of back and forth that's probably my captures me better than any other scene mm-hmm. you know uh, that's the one he sort of touched I mean he didn't really touch that scene very much and that's always um, the thing I'm curious about like, yeah. the thing that's there from the beginning right yeah it's, hard, and it's really it's really harder than this one because Alan Adam is such a generous rewriter that if you if you had a little half sentence that was interesting he'd find a way to work it in two acts later you know he really did one of those rewrites where he left whole stretches untouched and then he sort of inverted things and, and borrowed things it was you know you can tell when a director is rewriting you with an eye towards whether or not they're going to get credit or not you know sure. and he didn't do that at all he he yeah. he basically if it was if it were if it met his sense of humor and his vision 
which again was slightly more farcical than mine, he kept it. And mm-hmm. if it got a little too complex, a little too wonky, he found a way to rework it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, having talked to him only briefly, it feels like he was as compelled to tell the story as you were doing it in the best way he knew how, yeah. which yeah. happened to Jive. Yeah, me, absolutely. Which was amazing. Yeah, he kind of always describes it as a chocolate and peanut butter kind of, you know. <laughs> And, and I do think there is, you know, my sense, my sensibility is probably more dramatic than comedic. You know, his obviously more comedic, comedic than dramatic. And in, in that sense, it was a really happy marriage. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it absolutely works. Uh, people should go see the movie if they have not seen it yet. I'm actually going to ask you for another copy of it because I want to watch it again now. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yeah. Of course. We always end by asking what you are watching these days, whether it's movies, TVs, or you reading books. Is there stuff that's getting you excited or inspired that you can't stop talking about? Uh... Yeah, I I am obsessed with this moment in our culture right now where, due to sort of hyper-partisanship, we are fragmenting out into these little communities. Like, I'm obsessed with college campuses and the sort of the way, you know, the social justice crowd is, is pursuing goals that we all find admirable if we're of the political ilk that I'm at, but at the same time find the manner so irritating, you know? <laughs> and I'm just interested in that, those kinds of... I think there's a lot going on in our country right now that's truly fascinating. We have, for the first time in probably 60 years, a demagogue. You know, who's, you know what I mean? It's like a really interesting moment where we have, oh, this is what a popular, classic populist demagogue sounds like and we haven't had one of those in forever right so it's you know there's so many interesting things going on in our culture right now we're in a weird moment so I'm I'm enjoying frankly reading the New Yorker and and, you know and and long form journalism there's there's so many great things you know if you just take the Sydney Awards that David Brooks gives out every year that you know those those ten pieces you're going to find five great movies uh, so I'm in, interested in that a lot, and um, uh, I think the Israelis are doing some truly smart television. Really? I, I'm, yeah, I'm keeping up. It, well, Haggai Levy is a friend of mine. Haggai created In Treatment, and he co-created The Affair. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going through right now uh, a TV thing he did for for Israel, which is this great, wonderful a portrait of these various Israeli intellectual figures told as if he's a documentary from documentarian from a period in the past where he yeah. goes to visit them. So he's costumed like in the seventies to go to see them, right? And some actor plays that person. And it, and it's just this really wonderful these wonderful portraits of these famous writers, artists, you know, filmmakers, whatever, from Israeli culture the last fifty or sixty years, which is the filmmaking craft of it is just really special. Um so I'm into that right now. Um you know, and and uh, I'm waiting for the next television show that feels like a must see, mm-hmm. right? I think we had. What was really, the last one for you? I think probably Breaking Bad. Oh no, I don't even Breaking Bad. Probably, yeah, probably Mad Men. Mad Men was probably the last sort of necess- culturally necessary mm-hmm. television. I mean, Breaking Bad was very good, but I don't think it was quite as necessary. You know, I'm waiting for what is that next in this glut in the marketplace where there are so many hundreds and hundreds of shows. What is the thing you absolutely have to see? And I don't think we've had one yet in a while. And maybe we're not going to. Maybe we're not going back to that. Maybe we're going to have these, you know, these niche markets that you mm-hmm. know we, we'll never have a cultural artifact that carries across the culture entirely. Maybe. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I don't. I don't usually ask this, but you've had such an interesting journey. Uh, what was the stuff that 
influenced you? What was the stuff that you read or watched early on that got you into stories and, right. and you know, this cultural exploration? Uh, love e- early Milos Forman. Mm-hmm. Loves of a blonde, you know, um, that stuff. Ch- what all was ch- it about that? Like, how old were you when was, you saw uh, that? You know, I don't know. I was probably in my 20s. <clears throat> uh, it was all very just all very real. This sort of, this wonderful tone where you just let humans be humans. And it's n- inherently interesting in the way you capture it. It's just sort of virtuosity <laughs> in filmmaking. Um, love Milos, Milos Foreman. Big Woody Allen fan, you know. Um... Uh, obviously, as all of us are in terms of the use of language, that inspired me a lot. Um, the philosophy of Antonio Gramsci is something I still use a lot in terms of how culture moves, uh, and and you know the the relationship between you know the avant garde and the dominant culture and how that works and how the dominant culture takes from the avant garde and then reworks it. I find those models really helpful in thinking out memes and tropes in movies. Um, Gosh, what else? Uh, literature is not proven, I think, in the in the latter half of the twentieth century to offer us so much for film. You know, I think literature took a took a different flights of fancy. You know, uh, tried to do things that film could not do, at least until the arrival of special effects. So I feel like we're in a you know you know I do believe that that the real world is probably more important for filmmakers than cinema history is for the first time. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, mm. but I, I would say if you're doing a, a, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker, as important as learning your craft and developing, you know, learning great films is to, to, to also be doing some social psychologies and pr- pursuing some of these other avenues in the world because I feel like that's, that's sort of where we're moving. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is all good stuff for people to consider when yeah. watching your films and watching any film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also my taste and, you know. Sure. It, and, 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 yeah. It's, it's neat to see it come out. Anyway, thank you so much for oh, the time, uh, Charles. Yeah. And guys, go watch the big show. Bye, guys. Now leaving Nerdist.com.